Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the director and owner of Snow Pro Ski School based here in Valdilier in Switzerland. I hope you're all doing well and I hope that you, wherever you are, you're having a great uh, snowy season. Um, I don't know what it's like in the US right now. Um, I don't know whether you're having the snow Mageddon season that you had last time. We've, uh, we've here in uh, in Europe, we've had quite a, a sort of snowy start of the season. We haven't had that kind of weird rain over Christmas thing that we had before. Um, but it's gone rather dry rather early. So normally we have quite a snowy January, um, but we've actually had this sort of hot high period of um, a high pressure period of weather um throughout january which seems to have come a bit earlier than normal normally that comes in february um and so it's made for quite pleasant skiing conditions actually you know sun's out uh, terraces are packed full of people um skiers love it who who come here as a tourist but uh, not much powder for the uh, the powder hounds amongst us um but i suppose every season you get what you get so maybe it's going to go cold and snowy in February. I guess we'll uh, I guess we'll find out. Um, here for episode sixty one, it's quite a uh, short interview, uh, intro from me this time. I've just got so much to do, and it's a really really busy time of year for us. Um, is with uh, Deb Armstrong. So I had the chance in the autumn um, to speak to Deb. Uh, it might even have been in the summer actually. Um, this one's been kind of sitting there waiting to go for quite a long time, and I just literally haven't got around to it it's completely my fault um deb you may know uh, more latterly from uh her wildly successful youtube channel uh, Sixty-one thousand subscribers amazing chats you know about skiing amazing videos skiing with uh you know bodie miller and uh, bodie miller and various other people and and there's just a huge amount of content on her channel which i've linked to in the podcast notes below um so you can uh, you can check it out if you have if you don't already know about it amazing technical content amazing um energy going through uh going through that channel and uh, and deb's sort of fundamental love for skiing really shines through in every every video that she does um we had a chance to catch up and 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 chat um we talked about kind of her career her development from you know when she was young all the way through to being an athlete athlete's mindset all of that kind of thing and then latterly the development of the channel and and how all that came to be once um you know once she once she was already coaching um youth athletes um it's a super super interesting interview i really really hope that you all enjoy it and that you get a lot out of it and um i think this interview just kind of speaks for itself so it doesn't need any further um introduction from me uh, just very much just to say thank you um to all of you who are listening to the podcast i really really appreciate it I did also get um, some correspondence in which I thought I would just share with you, um, a couple of which to do with the last uh, episode, which was with Julian, which is about the avalanche um, avalanche safety episode. So uh, the first one was from Paul, uh, Paul Bliss. He says, hi, Dave, I've been listening to your podcast for a while and they're really excellent to keep up the good work. And then he went on to ask me about when Julian's going to be giving his talk in the Port de Soleil. And once I've set that up, Paul, I will... Um, uh, I will let you know, and you and all your colleagues um, in Morsey, and I'll, I'll definitely send you that. Um, I got something in here from Bob Millsy. Bob said, hi, Dave. I just listened to the Bruce on Avalanche podcast with Julian Griffiths. It was a sobering listen, but thanks for that. Um, 
I'm a Verbier local and regular off-piece skier. I'm always looking to further educate myself and pass on experience to my kids. I wonder if it's possible to get access to the photos and videos that you were discussing of the site, Avalanche and Trigger Point. Um, just to interject there, Bob, I'll, I'll try and um, I'll send you over, uh, if I haven't already done so, Julian's details, and maybe he can share some stuff with you there. Um, I guess one of the subsequent avalanches you referred to was the highway avalanche a few days later i posted this up to try and raise awareness for my fellow verbier free riders and bob sent me um a post that, that he'd put on facebook which was to do with um to do with the slope that we talked about there so um yeah i uh, i mean i don't know exactly where that is but uh, but certainly you know i really appreciate that you were sharing all of that info um with your um with your fellow skiers in verbier because i think it's really really important that you've got um that you sure share that info and, and make people aware of the, the the dangers around you so thank you for doing that and thank you for getting in touch appreciate it and finally um uh bill ross from montreal got in touch with me thank you uh bill we swapped some correspondence but um uh he said to me he wanted to pass on a few thoughts following uh, after listening to some of your podcasts so first of all thanks for bringing up the points raised in my prior email to you in your q a session with phil brown um his answers were pretty good you know he'll be pleased to hear that um but one point stood out for me in particular when he said that many skiers today lack basic steering skills i think that was the term he used um basically because the type of skis they've learned on and also their instructors as opposed to decades prior with straight skis learning classic parallel with steering and skidding skills also, I've just been listening to your current podcast with Julian and his rather sad but instructive stories about three skiers that were lost in recent avalanches. It's interesting that he also made the point that skiers with straight skis in the old days might not have had the same results since they used narrower skis with obviously a narrower ski stance and their skiing skills were superior to the younger skiers today. I'm attaching um, a recent link to a YouTube uh, interview with Harold Harb, who you've probably heard of over the years. Um... What's interesting is that he said at the beginning of his interview that when he started skiing as a youth growing up in Montreal, his goal and focus was to learn parallel. He mentioned that several times. I identify with that since having grown up in Montreal and still skiing after many decades, that too was my goal, was to ski parallel. I'm struck by the fact that nobody today even talks about skiing parallel. It's all about carving. Um, I've concluded that there's a great paradox with the the shape ski revolution it's undoubtedly attracted millions of new skiers but to the extent that it's made skiing easier precluding the necessity uh, precluding the whatever that word is to learn basic turning skidding and parallel skills there's been a dumbing down of skiers skills um yes i i kind of agree with you bill i, th I think the accessibility of um skiing to the general public these days is a good thing in general it's never been easier to learn how to ski and it makes people it makes skiing more accessible skiing has still got this demographic problem in that the, um, the vast majority of people that practice it are, are older and it, if the barriers to entry to get people going are lower then that is a good thing um because the more people that can enjoy skiing, the better it is for everybody who makes a living out of skiing and indeed everyone who wants to enjoy the mountain. Um, that with it, you are correct. It comes with its own set of risks in that the dangerous off-piste stuff is more accessible. And I suppose the only way that you can fix that is through is through education of 
what lurks beneath um, all of all of that, you know, glorious off piste. Um, it doesn't really. That's not going to change. Not going to go. We're not going to go back to skinny skis anytime soon. Um, so I think it's more. You know, we would have to go in that direction in terms of in terms of education to do with off piece. And I think Julian raised a few um, pertinent issues about that when we were when we were talking on that podcast um, about how we could raise awareness of of you know off piece skiing danger and uh, things that you can do to mitigate that. In its defence, the and we see this often with the ski school. The vast majority of people do not have the skill, the skills to even with fat skis to ski off piste beyond thirty degrees. It's a limited number of people. It's like a, uh, a you know a small subset of the skiing general public can get to those places and have the ability to ski it and have the ability to trigger avalanches in the the right place to a certain extent. So. It is a kind of a minority problem compared to the vast majority of the skiing general public, but it is still a problem um, and it still does need to be addressed through education. It needs to be addressed through education in the, the places where those people look for their skiing inspiration, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, good points. And uh, thank you, everybody who takes the time to uh, write to me. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, as, as, as you all know, and most of the time I do write back to you, I hope. Um, anyway, I'm going to continue now with the, uh, with the, the, the podcast with, with Deb Armstrong. We initially talked um, as we got, or as I pressed play on the recorder, we were talking about why I did the podcast Um which is something that she asked me uh, right at the start is what exactly I was doing. So here we go. I ended up coming, popping out of the top of the instructor, the Swiss instructor system. And it feels like you sort of fall off a cliff a little bit. And, um, you're sort of sitting there thinking, well, I wonder what there is else to learn, you know? Like I was looking, I would really have liked there to have been some sort of general development. You know, I enjoyed the process of going to exams and learning stuff. And um, there was nothing, you know? There wasn't anything for people that, you know, there was like you're a fresher that you do every two years, but it's nonsense. Like in the Swiss world, that's just a ski about and a coffee. And, uh, and I thought, well, what can I do to keep myself fresh and keep learning? And that's how the podcast came about. So I just started having conversations yeah. with people that I sort of knew and respected. And long story short is that I just started to record them. And then lo and behold, you, you've got 54 episodes in the bag and a whole bunch of listens and stuff. It's nowhere near as big as what you're doing on YouTube, but it's a different thing. What I'm trying to do is create like a, almost as if you had like a series of like old cassettes, you know, that, that people could take and listen to and gain and have the knowledge there for future ski instructors, essentially. You know, it's going to live online forever. It's just a kind of a thing that a lot of people help me and I would like to say, well, okay, well, let's see if we can help the future generation shortcut all that, like... All those decades of kind of picking up stuff that you that that I had to go through, maybe that can that can be accelerated a little bit for future instructors, and it just lifts the level of everybody else. So that's the purpose of this, really, is just to find interesting people and have chats and and see what happens. 
I love it. Well, you're going to have to excuse, excuse me because I have a little bit of a cold, so I'll, I'll be blowing my nose every now and then. Sorry have, for that. That's, that's, it's not that's, ideal. But. It's, it's fine. It's fine. I'm happy with that. So, yeah, and I'm sure you've done this more than I have because um, you're, like, legit famous. So, um, yeah, I guess we just get going and see where it comes. So what I normally do is we just, I'll cut into the conversation somewhere in the edit and we just go from here. So there won't be like a sort of a formal start. Yeah. I'll introduce it in the start All good. later on. So um, thank you for taking the, thanks for taking the time to come and come on and have a chat. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Are you done skiing or are you I still wouldn't. hanging around the glaciers? What, what are you? Um... Right now? Yeah. Cause well, uh, I'm, I'm in Steamboat, Colorado right now, and it's a warm spring, sunny day, and up in the mountains, the snow is melting fast, and the river is raging, okay. and my tulips, my tulips are out in full color, uh, so I'm in spring mode right now. Have yours only just come out? Because ours have kind of been and gone where we are. Well, here in Steamboat, um, our elevation uh, is about 6,000 feet. What is that? I, I it's about 2,000 meters. That's pretty high. However that works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so our, our spring is a little late. Um, our, our winter comes kind of early. Yeah. So, yeah. And you've had an amazing winter, right? Big snow. Ridiculous snow. Ridiculous big snow. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, very good. Good. That's great. Because I, I was seeing some places like there were places like Killington is still open. Yeah, like, you know, it's and nuts. I, like the I've places seen that are still well, going, uh, yeah. which is really cool. And here in Colorado, you know, they ski at Ape Basin and Loveland uh, late into the spring. Yeah. And then they open early in the fall. So, yeah. That's crazy because I mean we we had the opposite winter here certainly in the Port de Soleil you know we it snowed meaningfully here I would say about three times this year um, it was really you know really a light winter and and the thing I think that we've noticed compared to when I first started skiing in this region is that the the way that they do snow grooming here is improved so they're much much better at like keeping the snow and not wasting all the stuff that kind of sits on the sides if you like you know they're really using that much much better in recent years so it's pretty it's pretty cool that's the one thing that that kind of saves these light winters that that we've been having recently but we're due a we're due a big one we must be it's been like three years like this now yeah the the technology uh with snowmaking and grooming and compaction of snow and all of that uh it, it, it's shifting the sport a little bit and mm. and uh, helping the season to be, be to begin earlier or lengthening the season a bit. I'll never forget it was early 80. It was I don't know, it was probably like 1981 and we were in Val team doing a little bit of training. Yeah. And we had a big dump of snow. And this was kind of pre grooming. Okay. Back then, there, there hey. wasn't a whole lot of grooming. Yeah. Um, and we so we had all of the snow, and at teen there was one cat width of a groom, one cat width. So you know, not very wide. Yeah. And with longer skis that back then, that made it very narrow. 
And then it was a foot on either side. And we had to ski right down that little cat width. And then there were these random cat widths all over the place. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, things have, things have changed a little bit through the years. I'd say. I'd say. So, yeah, I was just going to go back because the listeners are going to be astounded by this. Like, we, we, it turns out that. Well, don't turn out because you were talking about tulips. I've got this. What like, I'm not that into gardening. I do the destruction side of the garden, which is like cutting, streaming grass because my garden is like you know on a vert 45 degree slope. But I've got this amazing plant at the moment, which I understand is called a clematis, right? And what it's doing is I've spent three years like threading this little plant so it climbs in the right direction and now it's gone up and over an arch and it's now completely out and i tell you what it's like i'm guessing that is what like all the gardening types they're all sort of say oh you know this is why we do it and stuff because this thing is glorious right now and it's like three years of yeah. hard work getting this that's so nice oh it's yeah. awesome it's really really cool really cool anyway that aside so for those there can't be that many skiers who haven't heard of you because you've got this kind of wildly successful YouTube channel. 63,000 subscribers, 10 million views. It's amazing what you're doing. How do we want to start with that and maybe we work backwards? How did you, how did you come to, to, to get going with that? Because it's pretty cool what you've managed to do. Yeah, well, I started my YouTube channel, I, I don't know how many years ago it was, um, eight maybe years ago, something like that. And I was the Alpine director, um, or essentially the race director for the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club, which was a junior club team. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were the breeding ground for sending kids to the U.S. ski team, Olympics, that sort of deal. And I had... Uh, Oh, actually, I started this as a U10 coach. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So after I was Alpine director, then I became the head U10 coach. And I had about 100 U10 kids, eight and nine-year-olds. And I had, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 coaches. And those coaches were very part-time. So what I wanted to do was uh, make these videos for the coaches to watch. Because when the coaches would show up for training, I needed them to be tight. Mm -hmm. I needed them to know exactly what I was prioritizing and wanting us to accomplish for the particular training session. These part-time instructors, they had desk jobs and they weren't thinking skiing all day like I think skiing all day. Mm -hmm. So that's how it began is, and those videos still exist uh, early on my channel. Um, you know, how to do hop turns, how to do railroad track turns, how, how to do this, how to do that. And those videos were for the coaching staff. And they also were videos for the eight and nine year olds to watch. Mm -hmm. And through that, I started to gain an audience. I learned about YouTube. I knew nothing. The whole thing was very organic. Yeah. And um, it just started to take off. That's cool, isn't it? And then when, because as I understand it with YouTube, people that have done it, they, it sort of stays a relatively low level. I'm, I'm sure you're not just doing it for like become YouTube famous, right? This thing, it's organic, it's organic. You know, you're, you're still occupied with doing what you're doing. But was there a point that it suddenly went crazy? Like in terms of like views and people that, that were subscribing you know, to it? There, there was, I was probably three or four years into it 
when I really realized that something was here that could be beyond just for my coaching staff. Mm -hmm. So then I started to be a little more intentional about it and started to make stuff to address uh, a broader audience. And that's when I called my channel kind of all things skiing. Mm -hmm. Because my channel, I do try to encompass all things skiing from from uh, having videos with ski personalities, uh, destination ski areas, to teaching the beginner, intermediate, expert skier, moguls, powder, racing, whatever. I try to cover all things skiing. Mm. And so when I started to branch out to a wider audience, then the channel just started to mushroom. And it's still mushrooming to this day, every winter it grows about 25%. Where does the audience so, come from? Like, who are they? Do you, do you have those? Well, do you look at that? Uh, a large group of the audience are ski instructors mm -hmm. uh, because I give content for instructors to copy. I give content for instructors. I, I feed ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, I try to help people's understanding. Uh, and then... Then there's the the group of skiers who I, I call kind of nerdy about it. They're, they just want more technical content. And with each video, I try to make it relevant for everybody. So if it's beginner content, hopefully the beginner has something to learn from it. But then a ski instructor has something to learn in how I teach the beginner content. So mm -hmm. I try to make it as transferable to different interests and levels as I can depending on how into it you are. Yeah, that's for sure. That that widely reflects what I do with this podcast. There is like the, the ski instructors, and then I think then there's like ski nerds, that's for sure. And then there's the same thing. There's actually just general skiers who I sure. think like having that kind of peek behind the curtain a little sure. bit, um, which... I'm guessing it's interesting for them to see what mountain professionals are actually thinking about. Hey, bless you. Um, <laughs> what mountain professionals are like thinking about, um, you know, during their day to day, right? Like it's not always the image that they see in the, in, in front of them. It's quite a polished Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of this stuff all the time. You should see my desk right in front of me. <laughs> I have books stacked up and folders and notes and clippings from magazines from the eighties and, I mean, I'm just surrounded by this ski stuff. And uh, this time of year, I can do a lot of my thinking. I like it a lot. Yeah, that's true. That is when I come up with a whole, my, like, that's when I sort of update my list of people that I want to ski with. Um, yeah. Yeah, my, my if, obviously we're comparing desks, but mine looks a little bit like that. It's a bit chaotic behind me, <laughs> uh, in front of me here, but I have my inspirational poster behind me, Glenn yep. Blake. And um, anyway, so... What I was going to say was, so the one that made me sort of sit up and notice, and I was like, I've got to, I've got to interview Deb, I have to, was the one where you did, you were doing the follow cam stuff with Bodie Miller. And I was like, wow, that video is just out of the world, out of this world. You know? Yeah, that, that was pretty special. And uh, on that same day, I was skiing with Franz Klammer. I saw that. It was just like. Yeah, <laughs> the same day. Well, yeah, there was an is that, I'm assuming that just happens Mexico. that just happens day to day where you live, right? Like it's just all these yeah, cool right. people hanging out. Well, you know, that's the thing with me because I go to different events and because of who I am in the ski world, I 
I have access to different skiers the way the general public might not because mm. I am one of those skiers in many respects. And so I'm going to be in an event where where legends are. And uh, that makes it really fun in that I have the interest in taking video and passing it along to people, putting the time into editing. It's kind of my hobby. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Oh, sure it is. And skiing with Bodie was was pretty darn cool. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I am skiing with Franz Klammer. Equally cool. Yeah. And then this last, yeah. Um, and what's what's so neat is and uh, is folks like that and myself included are skiers, mm. are lifelong skiers, and passionate about skiing. Always thinking about the ski turn. Just always thinking and enjoying it and feeling it and liking to be on good equipment, wanting performance equipment and seeking the feeling um, that they've just fallen in love with. And to be out with people like that on the hill and riding the chair and sharing stories and talking technique, Mm. uh, compare and contrast. You know, different styles, different interests, different ages. Uh, it, it's just, it's lifelong, and I, I'm just so grateful to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah, that is really cool. The um, the other one that I really like that, that I do follow, who also does kind of, I, I remember distinctly one of his videos. Um, do, do you know Marcus Caston? Um, I'm not sure. Okay, I'll send that to you later on. But Marcus did a really great one. Like he, he does some amazing videos. He's a brilliant skier. But he was also doing some stuff where he's just kind of ripping around the mountain with just a, a random under 14, you know, racing girl or whatever. And just like, you know, shredding in the bank country. It's really, really cool, you know, because it's like, yeah, you see these people, but everyone is there up there for the same reason, you know, like we all just love to ski. And that's the point of it, right? We all just love to ski. There is yeah. no question about it. And that means, be, you know, the, the being in the mountains, just that essence of the mountains and the wind in the face and mm. dealing with the snowy day and um, everything that comes with that mountain feeling and that mountain experience and the athleticism that comes with skiing and the movement and the the constantly seeking to get back into balance and the dance and... Mm. Uh, and you know, I've, I've been in love with this my entire life. Uh, and I, I'm a connoisseur of it. And, and my parents were too. My dad was the technical director of the ski school where I grew up skiing. Mm. My dad was a clinical psychologist, I wanted to talk um, but to you on the that. weekends we'd go to the ski area and my dad was the technical director. So, okay. so from back in the seventies and the eighties, you know, my dad was was collecting technical content and he was developing technical manuals. And, you know, I was off ski racing, so he and I weren't talking about this sort of stuff. But but somehow that just got into my DNA and and uh, I have all my dad's notes and um, clippings that he's kept and models he developed and. What's interesting is we're all seeking skiing and 
perfecting skiing and working on our technique and our skill and trying to understand skiing, um, there's not a whole lot out there that really is new. Like I read articles from the 80s and we're talking about the same stuff. Uh, yep. Now technology, technology shifts things a little bit and then there's nuances of the sport that, that shift with the technology. But I kind of think of that as an accent. You know, you, you've, you've, in the United States, we're so big, we've got a Texas twang or a New Orleans accent or a Boston mm. and, uh, uh, an, an Eastern accent, um, or a, you have a British accent for English, right? Yeah. But we're still using the ABCs and, you know, we still have sentence structure and vowels and we still all have all of these things for our language, just a different accent of it. And I, I feel like it's the same with skiing, that we have different styles, but we're still dealing with balance. We're still dealing with the skills. Um, and we're we're blending and mixing and matching and depending on our our taste and and what we're trying to accomplish. So I could just go on forever. Um, I love it. it. It's sort of infinite for me and never ending. But what's so interesting is there's not a whole lot that's really new. I think what what things are that are new. It is that it's a new understanding for the individual that mm. the individual has grasped this maybe for the first time. Um, but I feel that the people who really understand skiing, what we're doing is kind of cherry picking from here, cherry pick from there. And, and we kind of come up with our own little system or model or, or, or bias for a, a presentation. And mm. that makes it fun. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think when you're teaching, isn't that part of the, we talk often on this podcast about trying to find the, the one thing that's really going to make that client's life easier. But that requires quite a deep understanding of how it all fits together. Um, which only There's comes from years and years. That, yeah, absolutely. Because one thing affects the other, you know, this as well as I do. And, um, yeah, I think, I think there's a, you have to understand the whole in order to be able to simplify it enough to give it to a client in, a, in a way that they 100%, can understand. Absolutely. And then take that a step further. And when it gets to the art of teaching, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's that technical element that you have to understand that you just expressed, mm -hmm. you know, bingo. But, but then there's the person, personal element, right? And, you know, there's understanding the person who's in front of you mm. or the group that's in front of you that you are facilitating learning with and knowing that person, their motivations, their fears, their equipment, their skill level, yeah. what they understand. I mean, that right there, again, is is just this endless quest. And what I've found in the last few years is I've, I've kind of grabbed that concept of, of the teaching um, in trying to be the most masterful teacher that I can. Mm -hmm. 
died, whatever. Um, because I've, I've dealt so much with the technical and there's not much that's changing there. And I, I pretty much get that. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's the person who's in front of me, who's new today that I don't know that I, I need to quickly figure out how I can reach them in the most efficient, concise, effective way. And I'll tell you what, that kicks my butt. I think That's it's, yeah, I, it's, isn't it, it's, it's harder than the technical element. It, it is, and it, it's so hard and it, it can be internally so frustrating. Mm -hmm. And is the instructor willing to go through that discomfort, willing to go through the frustration? Because if you're not reaching the person, if they're not getting it, it can be frustrating because to you, it's so simple. To you, it's so easy. Why yeah. are you not getting it, skier? <laughs> and yeah. I have my little internal explosions that don't come out externally, but it's my little internal environment of a world that is really chaotic. Mm. It's all over the place. Trying to figure out how to reach them, using the time on the chairlift trying something new on the hill. And I've really embraced that challenge and find joy in it because most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time I get to the other side successfully. Yeah. And we have a, a positive, transformative experience. And, and maybe on the outside, it looks easy. But for me, internally, it's chaotic. It's crazy. It's really, really hard. It's a challenge. And it's an art because I'm, I don't have the exact answer. I, I have to kind of work myself there. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a funny one that I'm already, I'm immediately thinking back to all the lessons where it hasn't worked, right? And you can feel the lack of connection with someone and like you you try a number of different ways to make it work but at the end of it you just think oh there was something off about that they might have thought you've done a really really good job you never know i think one of the things that's that's curious about that it's about the you know the the, the connection but often you get adults they're not they're not often used to being in that situation, right? Taking a ski lesson, in fact, as an adult, you rarely learn something completely brand new. So often they don't really even know how to act in that situation. Let's say you're 40 years old, right? You've been an accountant all your life. You know how to do accountancy. You go to your office, you do your accountancy thing, you come back, you do a bit of networking here and there, and this is your life, right? You go to your house and you throw something in that is as random as sliding down the hill on two planks of wood. You don't do any other sport or whatever. It's all new and it's all difficult. And you've got, you know, you or me who shows up, you know, we know what we're doing. You're trying to make conversation with that person. You know, you know, Alan, the accountant, what do you do? What do you, you know, what's your, what do you do in life? What do you like to do? You know, what, what, what makes you tick? Yeah. I'm curious to get to know you. And they're not used to being in that situation because it's all brand, there's so much going on. That's right. Well, in that, that you, you just, that's a profile of 
one of the individuals out there that we as instructors run across mm. and 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 a million other profiles with a similar challenge. I mean, that is the, the sort of challenge that as an instructor, mm. you need to assess and pick up on right away. Yeah. And then what's your strategies for dealing with this person? And and that's that's how and why ski instruction is not easy. Yeah. It's, it's just not easy. I mean, I consider myself good at it. I consider myself a pro. I, I'm teaching ski instructors. I'm a pro's pro, right? Mm -hmm. And ski instruction kicks me every day I got out there. <laughs> it just, and, and, and maybe the difference between me and some other people is that I recognize it and I embrace it. Like I fully wrap myself around it. The challenge, the intrigue, and the joy of of I've I've decided that this is my quest. This is what I want to become better at. Mm -hmm. I I want to I can this is the area where I can really strive and become better and more nuanced every single day. For me, understanding technique, that's not so much the case. It's Technique for me, I've so much been there, done that. And I'm constantly paying attention. I'm constantly evolving. I'm constantly trying to keep up with things and and chat with experts out there. But that's very small and incremental for me. Where I find this whole area of interest and new and still room for a, a lot of growth and a lot of challenge is that teaching part. And I very intentionally and consciously in the last few years um, embraced that area for me personally that I can continue to strive and become better. So here's something for you then. It's just a, just a thought. You can riff on this if you don't want to, but I'm in a phase at the moment of recruiting people and I'm speaking to a guy at the moment who I wouldn't mind having for one of the roles that I've got free. We have a two phase rec recruitment process. So my technical director, Max, he does all the technical stuff. I don't talk to the ski instructors at all about technical or teaching, not interested. Well, I'm, and the, the listeners have heard this before, so bear with me listener. But the, what I recruit for is personality and experience of personality. Because if I'm sitting on the lift with Alan, the accountant, it would help me to know a little bit about the corporate world. It would help me a little bit to know roughly what his life looks like and things that we could talk about that kind of roughly translate into his life. If I'm an absolute rookie ski instructor who only knows skiing, it's tough for me to relate to Alan, the accountant on his one week holiday to Steamboat Springs, right? Mm -hmm. So I recruit for people with a little bit more experience and a little bit more about them and a bit more life experience in general about them. Um, the guy that I really want for this role, for example, used to work on oil rigs in, in the North Sea, you know, and he's done a bunch yeah. of other stuff. And he's been all around the world. And you're like, okay, well, there's a guy that we could take on. And I know that for the time that he's sitting on the chairlift, he can relate to different types of people. That's one of the, yeah. the, 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 the real essential skills of being a ski instructor as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, people skills. There's no question about it. And and another element um, that's really important to me with those people skills is somebody who um, I don't know what the right words are, but they're 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 really passionate and interested and care about the results. Like they really, really care. They, they want to deliver upon an experience and, and, um, and they, they may not, that instructor still technically maybe has a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And me as the trainer, I can give them that information. I'm not going to give that person an expert skier yet. I'm going to give that person a lower level skier. Yeah. And I'm going to give them kind of the, the roadmap to try to get there. But, um, you know, if that instructor is just like really present and re with that athlete, they've got the people skills and have fun with that. And they're also really passionate and interested in, in being there and, and wanting to see this, guest and the person they're dealing with succeed and go through the process with the client. Um, I mean, I, I've had coaches and seen instructors out there who, who maybe they're, maybe they're good technically and all that, but they're kind of just going through the motions and um, skiing is too darn hard. Teaching is too darn hard. Like, to just go through the motions. You, you've got to be so present, so in the moment, so kind of zen. Mm. Zen with it all by that in the moment, you know, and anticipating and, and all that. But, um, yeah. And, you know, not not everybody, uh, I, I think that side of it's really important as well. Mm. I think there is because there's no letter. If I think back, I'm thinking back right now to a very specific lesson that I did for a couple of people last, yeah, the winter just gone. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, that was, the technical aspect of it is very simple, right? You have a technical toolbox and you can be like, right, okay, well, the next thing I need them to do this because this, 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 this leads into this and this leads into this, you know, like that's to pull out the thing that you need is relatively simple if you know what you're doing. Then, but you you also while you then you so then while you're on the lift, this happened to be like a drag lift environment. So you're going up on the lift. Maybe you're making some conversation over your shoulder. You're asking them a little bit about their life. But at the same time, you're thinking right, like what is the next thing we need to be doing? How many more times do I repeat this before we move on to the next thing? Is you know his husband over there? Is he happy? He doesn't look like he's being challenged enough. Do I need to get this? You know, do I need to get the wife over here to get to this level so that she can go round and round on her own so I can take him to a more challenging slope? Like, you know, there's there's so much going on and you're quite drained after it, you know, because it's, it, it's, it, it's all consuming. And, you know, to use the analogy of learning skiing, right, you, I mean, to, to learn skiing, you, you just need to have mileage. You need to have uh, sliding experience. So through different situations. So you can start to feel and learn and anticipate what to expect. This snow condition will feel like this. This snow condition will feel like that. This, if I make this mistake, whatever. I mean, that there's just a lot of mileage uh, and, and um, you know, sensory input, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the same with teaching. 
Um, teaching takes mileage. You know, there you just every lesson you get out there, you're gonna learn something new that you, you either are gonna hang on to and do that again, or you're gonna say, "Whoa, that sure didn't work." And whoever you are, um, you're you can be a student of it, and you read about it, and you clinic just just like skiing. You can be a student of it. You can watch my videos. You can listen to your podcasts and. And, and all of that can help, but bottom line, you need to have mileage. Hmm. Um, and it, and it's, it's the same with skiing. I've, I've been coaching skiing and teaching skiing uh, and, being, and been a student of skiing um, for, you know, in, in an intentional student of skiing, you know, for <clears throat> over 40 years. And... Um, I'm, I'm still learning. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I, I just think about those new instructors out there. Um, uh, I, I, or I think about the first lesson, the first ski lesson I ever gave. Are you kidding me? I had, I fortunately had a mentor <laughs> and somebody who really had my back. Yeah. And they kind of back led me a little bit and because I didn't have a clue. You know, and I understood skiing, but well, that must be quite. Me. That must have been quite humbling, though, because you'd come from quite a high, quite a high. He says a very high place, and to come down and then to be, you know, what's the typical lesson that you get as a rookie instructor? Like it's like a four-year-old or a three-year-old or something. That, and you, well, that that and beginner lesson, that first yeah. lesson I ever gave, was for an adult, but it was beginner. Yeah, it was absolute beginner, yeah. and. You know what? I mean, but see, I I entered into ski instruction after I was on the U.S. ski team, had a successful year, a successful career after being a gold medalist, you know, a two time Olympian, da da da, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, what I didn't want to be Deb Armstrong, the gold medalist, the rest of my life, and be insecure talking about skiing. Hmm. insecure talking about movements and me and my personality i just grabbed that and uh, now i'm an expert in that realm um but i i put the student hat on for a long time i went through all the psia clinics and i taught beginners i still like to teach beginners every year i love it because i have all sorts of theories i have all sorts of ideas about teaching and I need to put those theories to practice. I need to have mileage with my ideas mm -hmm. um, and see how they work out. Okay. And how much... Did, so, so essentially, I'm getting the impression that you attacked this new life and in ski instruction, I'm guessing with the same intensity that you, you attacked your ski racing career, right? Well... Um, I mean, you, you can't take the nature out of a person. No. And, uh, and so, yeah, my, my nature is to, to go for something. There, there's going to be nothing ever in my life that is on par with being a, a world-class athlete, mm -hmm. uh, where every cell of your body 24-7 is operating 
kind of in this one singular focus to, to make a fast ski turn. And there's nothing normal about that. It, it's, it's not normal. It's, mm. and you're, you're rewarded for very narrow behaviors yeah. uh, that, that work well for you and being a successful ski racer, but you move away from that and you have to retool um because you're you're living in the everyday world that's that's broader and you're dealing with everyday people that are normal you know so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you need to adjust so isn't you know, that nothing, that's a, nothing that, will ever be yeah sorry Dave. like that isn't that like isn't that the struggle isn't it that people from the military have when they come back from war you know like you, you see that or you hear that a lot especially in the u.s i'm guessing the amount of troops that you had in Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, you come back to like real regular life and it's just, it's not the same, you know, there isn't that singularity of purpose and, and focus. You know, I think that it, it, there, there's, I mean, putting life on your, on the line and, and war and all of that, that's, that uh, that's taking it even to another level mm. um but the spirit of what you're saying i agree with completely um that with that singular focus and with teammates us teammates often called one another comrades mm-hmm. you know we're we're kind of in this little war comrades yeah um yeah it's it's very it's traumatic it's very traumatic and and it it that that analogy um isn't isn't fair but uh, yeah, when when you retire from being uh, an athlete at that level, there's a lot of retooling that has to happen. Yeah, and surely that you're lost. Takes a lot of time. You're lost yeah. a little bit for a while, aren't you? Well, lost. I don't. That might be a little too simplistic. Without uh, purpose. And it's going to be different for everybody. Yeah. Um. I I think retooling is. That's that's a better word for me. Mm-hmm. That that I I didn't feel lost, but I knew I needed to retool. I knew I needed to adjust, uh, make accommodations mm. for this different world that I was going to be negotiating every day. Yeah, and especially with uh, you know, I'll, I've been a little bit. If I'm honest, I've been a bit worried about this particular interview insofar as that I my personality type is clearly quite different to yours I'm wondering if I was actually going to be able to keep up right because your sort of natural energy it strikes me as you know it's very intense like you know you can focus that in whatever direction imagine after you popped out of ski racing you're now thinking well okay I've got to I've got to find an outlet for this energy and point it in a certain direction otherwise it could be quite destructive no question about it. And that's a massive, massive adjustment. And, you know, I gave myself time. I gave, I, I, it, it took me about eight years, I'd say, mm-hmm. to transition. And in that time, I went to school, I got a degree, I, I wrote papers and read books, and, and that was all really important. And um, there also were some hard moments uh, psychologically going through the transition i took an example there's a slogan out there that's popular kind of cliche Mm -hmm. no pain no gain okay and um i think a lot of people have heard that and 
as an athlete, and when I was younger, you'd hear that a lot. No pain, no gain. You got to sweat. You got to hurt. You got to push. Um, there's a there's a point in life where that becomes harmful. A point in life that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. And 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 so getting to a point in your life where you figure out what that line is. What's that line that? Um, uh, how how hard do do you really have to push? And and when when do you just be easier on yourself, gentler on yourself? And I definitely went through a window of time where I kind of did a 180 degree pivot Mm -hmm. from the concept of no pain, no gain, because for me that had become harmful. Yeah. Pushing too hard. And I I had to be easier on myself. And so I I flipped 180 degrees. And and then after a few years, you come back to the middle and, and you kind of figure it out. But but things, I don't know, things like that. How much do you, how much, curious to know the answer to this, your father is a clinical psychologist. How much did an under, I mean, did he pass any of that knowledge on to you? Do you have a better understanding of self as you were going through the athlete process or in general in your life like as, you, as you were going along? Uh, 100%. Uh, you know, so my dad was, uh, he was on the, the faculty of the medical school at the University of Washington as a clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. And so when I was 17, 18, 19 years old, I'd, I'd go to the University of Washington, I'd ride my bike there, I'd walk there, and dad and I would have lunch. And he would talk, and I'd just want to take notes. Mm-hmm. Because my dad just had all this wisdom. I, I, it just amazed me. I mean, what 17-year-old is taking notes when their dad talks? I mean, that just doesn't happen, right? But but I did. Yeah. There was a lot to be learned. And um, and again, right here in front of me on my desk are uh, my dad's papers. And my dad was the sports psychologist for the USA Luge team um, for, you know, 1986, 87, 88. My dad went to the Calgary Olympics in 1988 as, as mm. with the luge team. My dad had an Olympic credential and I was there as an athlete. Amazing. So I have my dad's papers of sports psychology related stuff. And so at the dinner table, we were, we were talking about the mind and the power of the mind and the mental gym, you know, and mental exercises and visualization I was working on all of that when I was 15, 16, 17 years old. And I see papers today or articles written today, and this is 2023. People are talking about mental concepts, you know, 40, 45 years later. Mm. I'm like, wow, I, we were talking, I was, we were talking about that at the dinner table when I was 17 years old. Uh, so that was a, a benefit and an advantage. For sure, for right? To, because also at that sort of age, you don't necessarily know yourself very well. In some ways, that's right. But in other ways, in other ways, at a very young age, when you're at that level of athletics, you're kind of getting a PhD in something. You're becoming the very best in the world very, very young. Mm. 
and um, and it's the ones who make it are the ones that who figure that out. The ones that don't make it, they 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 just fall away to the wayside. And so when I was 16 years old, for example, and I'll use myself as an example of somebody who made it, right? Mm. Um, so I, from a young age, was honing in on the right skills. From a young age, I was honing in on the things that were working yep. um, to my benefit. So I was 16 years old and I loved to play basketball and uh, I went to the basketball court. I was there by myself and um, I was taking free throw shots and I was playing mental games with myself because I was really superstitious and I knew that my superstitions were going to become very inconvenient at yeah. the wrong time. Yeah. And then I had to get a hold of that. I had to take the power away from the superstition. So nobody told me to do this. My dad didn't say, go work on this exercise. Mm. This was something that I figured out. I was innovative. And I've always said that the champions are the most innovative. Yep. They're, they're the ones, if you're going to be the best, you separate yourself out from everybody else. There's nobody else to follow. Mm -hmm. You have to be innovative to to weave through that. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that when I was 16, figuring that out for myself, I think that was an example um, of a, a youngster who was being very innovative, figuring things out, um, understanding what my liabilities were, and that I had to get a handle on those and figure out how to deal with them to move on. I'm uh, I'm the podcast host, so I'm I'm obliged to ask you about the superstitions. You got to tell me about the weird ones. What was? Uh... Well, I'm, I'm I'm 60 now, and I'm talking about some uh, superstitions from when I was 16. <laughs> okay. So, Can you remember them? I I I, I remember that. You know, I I I. Re I remember always needing to put, let's say, my right sock on before my left sock. Yeah, okay, with you on that one. You know, yeah. something like that, right? And so what I'd do at the basketball court was I'd take my shoes off and I'd put the left sock on first. And I'd take a bunch of shots. And then I'd take my shoes off and I would put my left sock on first. <laughs> and I did that 50 to 100 times. Mm -hmm. Just so that would not be and it. I just numbed that superstition down through repetition. It's curious. It's really curious. I've got a weird one going on at the moment, which is to do with that. But it's, it's, so, it's so unnecessary because well, it means nothing. Whenever I leave my garage, I've got three motorbikes, so I have to line them up in a certain order. And I have to touch each one in order in in distance from the back of the garage to the front of the garage without doing anything else and being distracted on the way out before I can shut the garage door. And it means nothing, but I do it every single time. And it's like stupid. It's so stupid. But you almost like the, the, the thing about that, and you can see why that would be. You think, well, at the moment I don't do it, I'm going to fall off one of these things when, I, when, I'm, when I'm out riding, right? There's no way to, you wouldn't want to take a hundred shots at that, for example. Um, but you can see how these things would develop in people. 
Well, yeah, and you know, so you 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 kind of you you just need to play it out and the situation, right? Mm. So for me as an athlete, um, I was astute enough, aware enough at 16 years old to realize that a superstition will will become inconvenient at the wrong time. So mm. I could not afford to have the power of superstition get in my way when I'm in the starting gate of a race. No, you could absolutely imagine. That. Yeah, you could absolutely imagine how that would be, right? Like you'd suddenly so, be standing in the start so gate. For that, for that reason, I had tremendous motivation mm. to tackle that issue. Yeah. I mean, I have superstitions today, which are really, really stupid and whatever, but there, I don't, I don't have motivation to deal with it. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. But as a 16-year-old athlete who's setting the stage for a motivated career, you know, I needed to be intentional. I needed to take care of these things. And those people who don't, they they fall off to the side. They're not going to be the champions. They're not going to make it. The champions account for every variable, every detail, every T, every is crossed, every I is dotted, and you, you just march along. But this is quite... Thinking back to the 80s, right? Like, or even earlier than that. The, these, are, these are concepts that are way ahead of their time. Aren't yeah. they? Well, oh, because people are talking about them now as if they're new. And yeah. I chuckle. Sports psychology you know, didn't really become a thing. Psychologists are writing articles in ski magazines or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's all great. But... Um, yeah, it's it's certainly not new to me. It's good. It's really good. Let me let me switch slightly because I'm curious to know this. I watched myself and my wife are going through uh, all of the James Bond movies in order from the first one to the last one. We are currently on the late '60s on Her Majesty's Secret Service which was with George Lazenby, his only one and only episode, uh, uh, movie as James Bond. In that, he skis down from a uh, mountain uh, restaurant, essentially. I can't remember which one it is. It's Piz Gloria or something, out in the Swiss Alps. And there's distinct scenes of him clicking into boots and equipment. The boots look like the kind of boots I go hiking in. And the skis are, you know, long, straight, thin. Bindings are just nothing. And I think it was Willy Bogner that did the ski scenes in that. Um, do you want to take us back to the equipment you first started racing on and compare it to the stuff that you're using now? Could you? Well, yeah. So, I mean, when I was on the World Cup, uh, I was on the World Cup from um, 80, 81 to 88. Okay. And, uh, you know, the skis were longer. They were straight. They had a lot of camber. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you worked hard to, to bend that ski, reverse camber. Um, there, the ski didn't have much shape to it. So, so through, through our steering and rotary movements at the top of the turn, we had to manipulate the ski and place the ski 
in the direction that we then kind of wanted to carve it. You, you weren't going to carve and bend the arc from the top of the turn mm -hmm. into the fall line like you can today, that it, it was a step, it was a, a pivot, it was, but it was some movement to place the ski on edge and, and have it bite and bend and, um, uh, so there, there was a little more, um, kind of manipulation of that real long ski to get it to, to work for us. I mean, today, um, uh, with the skis on the snow, you know, with ski snow contact and through lower leg engagement, you know, through the free and through tipping and rotating of the femurs. I mean, you get that ski up on edge and bang, you're, you're carving it into the fall line. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, so that, that's different. Um, but then shape skis came out. And with shape skis, the, uh, the ski instructors and the leaders in the sport, not the ski racers so much, I don't, maybe, but more the, the instructor side of things, were really thrown for a loop in trying to figure out how do we ski this new equipment. Mm -hmm. And there, there, was, there were very exaggerated lateral movements across the skis, you know, move way lateral to get the ski high up on edge. And of course that works. If, if you move that way, it gets the ski up on edge, but you're moving away from your base of support. You're moving away from the skis. So you don't have the ability to pressure the ski and to bend the ski effectively. <clears throat> so the pendulum and in balance <clears throat> and skills, I think was really kind of messed up for a little while, like out of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I followed that because I was grounded in, in, uh, technical principles that I think were very universal yeah. and with people moving away from those technical principles. I mean, to me, that was glaring what was going on, but I understood skiing so well. I'm like, no, don't work laterally like that. You're moving away from your skis. So I felt like I was sort of marching along consistent and then everybody came back. Mm -hmm. Now today people understand, you know, balancing with your, your platform and, um, and, and how to, to steer the ski, to tip the ski, to pressure the ski, uh, in a efficient way. Um, cause shape skis have been around long enough now yeah. that the pendulum kind of just went, you know, back and forth. And now I think we've sort of kind of honed in on, you know, what modern skiing is and should be and looks like. Yeah. With, you know, a variation of style difference. That's all fine and good. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, that, that was, um, the ski that I was on back then. And I, I'll tell you to ski the skis back then kind of pre grooming, mm -hmm. um, you had to be an expert skier. Like you were not going to get to the top of the mountain, uh, that was full of moguls because it hasn't been groomed with long skis. You're not going to get to the bottom without being an expert, skillful skier. Mm -hmm. So in my view, um, 
the 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 skillfulness of the general overall public in many ways was better. Yeah. It were forced to be more skillful. Mm-hmm. Now today the advantage is skiing is more accessible to everybody. Yes. With the new equipment it is easier in many respects. But if you want to be an expert skier uh it's not easy. It's it it um it takes tremendous strength. Yep. Uh, cat-like quickness. Yeah. Uh, tremendous skillfulness. So people can be fooled when they say the new equipment is easier, um, because it takes a lot of strength to bend the ski, and a lot of skillfulness to engage it at the top of the turn Absolutely, and yeah. be balanced with it yeah. to have all options available for whatever you want to do. I, I couldn't agree more, and that's something that I haven't really heard that perspective before from anyone. I think that is so valid because it re- reflect it actually reflects my own experience this season. Certainly, I've been struggling with like back injuries for for, for years, and to try. You know, this this year I got injured skiing with a client because I couldn't keep up, and the the the, the surface was too hard, and I could not I could not make those the the modern day athletic movements that you need to make in order to ski at an expert level it's incredibly physical but at the same time it's never been easier to learn how to ski that's right the ski does all the work all you got to do is stand on it right right it it just it auto turns it's never been easier to learn how to ski but the reactions that are the reactions and the strength that you need to be able to ski a 165 SL ski like well is a, is another world. I can't do that anymore. I haven't got the strength. Uh, it cooks my legs instantly and I haven't got the agility anymore. Like yeah. and I'm only no, it's a, 47. It's a massive, massive, massive athletic uh, feat. You know, yeah. a, a tremendous skillfulness goes into that. Yeah. You yeah. You only need to look at the World Cup slalom, right, to, to see that. Men or women. Yeah. The the moves they're making are just ridiculous. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. And on the surface that yeah. they're making that on too. You know, because yeah. that's not that's snow right. most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, um, although I'm just going to tangent off just for a second before I ask you my next question about boots, because the boots was, the, I'd like to talk about, you talk about skis, but I'd like to talk about boots. But then when you do the follow cam, with Bodie Miller, and you see even like current day Bodie Miller when you film that video, let alone World Cup Bodie Miller, and you're talking about base of support for the skis, the lateral angles that, that guy was making, even on that video, it's just crazy. Do you think you know the the ability to send the skis just that far away and know where the balance point is? Would you say he's a one-off in that respect, or can everyone do that? Off. Well, oh, like a I... like a special talent to be able to f- to be able to go that far and that far back in terms well, of no, no, because you look at Ted Ligeti, um, you know, you, you, I mean, you look at the best skiers today, and 
they the the their ability to stand with the base of support be perpendicular to the top sheets of their skis the top sheets of your skis right mm -hmm. and that top sheet can be tipped way on edge but the body is pressing down on that top sheet so you're you're perpendicular to that platform yeah. that base of support and um you know the best skiers in the world who have that look that's so massively lateral mm -hmm. the inside leg has become so short and their ability to ski their legs out from under them out to the side but but still be perpendicular to that 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 top sheet of the ski mm -hmm. um and be balanced with it so that they can bend the ski and pressure the ski um you know that's that's just years and years and years and years and years of of training and of trust there's a lot of trust there in knowing what your equipment in knowing how your equipment works mm -hmm. and trusting that the equipment that type of ski you know if you ski it out there and you press on it it's it's, it's gonna, if you right. press to yeah. the right it's going to bend back to you to the left that's a lot of trust yeah for sure. That's how the equipment works. That's the technology. That's the shape in the ski. And so, I mean, so Bodhi has a number of things. He's he's got he's he's stronger than than other people. He understands the equipment more than anybody else. He he's he's refined his balance point and his movements just so precisely. Um, I mean, that that's just the epitome of, of the expert. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's years and years. And, and everybody else sees that outcome that Bodhi accomplished. They see that outcome, that lateral look. And people say, well, I want to look like that. You yeah. know, you got to go and back and do they, the 30 years of work. Legs way out there yeah. and their body way in here. And they, they just don't have the building blocks to support that, to make that work. Yeah. Yeah, and the and the thirty five years of previous work that goes into giving that That's outcome, right. right? Yeah, hear you. Talk to me about boots when you were initially race, you know, when you were racing World Cup. Like what evolution in boots from then till now? I'm guessing the boots were. Let me see, early eighties. We talking about like rear entry. What were uh, they called? The SX rear entry existed. That Solomon, I never skied a rear entry. Oh no! Okay. Uh, no, no, I never skied a rear entry. I was on Nordica. Uh, I was on um, uh, a Reikley for a spell. Yeah. Um. You know, I one. I'm. We've been talking about Bodhi. I mean, he's very geeky and techy with his equipment. I never was no. at all. There's a photo of me skiing the U.S. National downhill in, I don't know, maybe 1982. And I'm skiing the downhill on two different boots. <laughs> two different boots. Because one was a recreational Nordica, Nordica boot called the Polaris. Right. And I was in that recreational boot that came almost up to my knee. It was a very high boot. Right. Because I had a hair, a boot top hairline fracture that was healing. Okay. And uh, it, it, it was healed, but it was still kind of sore right at the boot top. So if I pressure my boot, 
that it, that that would it would hurt. So I just got a Polaris and skied in that instead, and it didn't hurt as much. Um, so, so that's an example. I, I said I think that said a lot about who I was as an athlete. Like, just give me some skis and give me a couple boots. I don't care if they match or not. I'm just going to go race. And that's what I did that day. Um, so that's to say that I did, I, I was very aligned. Other people, you know, that maybe knock meat or bow legged, da, da, da. I'm very neutral, very aligned. So I think because my body was efficient and worked to my favor, I never got caught up in having wanting to correct this or wanting to correct that. I think I was sort of oblivious to all of those issues. Right. Um, and I mean, I you know, I'd get in a boot or I'd get on a ski and I could tell you if I liked it or not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was on Dina Star skis at the time. And of course, at my level, they make skis for you. They made skis for me. And I'd test my skis and I'd like this pair. I didn't like that pair. Same with boots. Um but you know, it was a four buckle boot, like we're using today. Uh, yeah. Would you say that you're not particularly sensitive then to equipment setup? You're just, are you one of these people a bit like some of the other instructors that I have worked for me, they just don't, you know, just give them anything and they'll go rip. Cause I'm, I'm um, not. You know, I, I'm, um, there, there is something to that for sure. But then there's something else to that as well. In in being a, a finely tuned athlete, like knowing my body, if something was a little off, then I knew it. Like mm -hmm. I, I was I was very honed. So for example, I had a knee surgery, and for the nature of my injury, Dr. Stedman had to put a screw in my knee. To hold things together, it was a dislocated knee. It's, it's, it's rare. Mm. And that screw was a little tight. Um, and what I didn't realize at the time was that tight screw took away the natural play in my knee. But I didn't realize that's what was going on. All that I knew was that I was up on the hill and I was really uncomfortable. Like mm. something was wrong. And I, I felt like I was going crazy. I, I couldn't, I got to the start of the Val d'Isere World Cup downhill and I pulled out of the start. I didn't race. Mm -hmm. Like that's unheard of. And I couldn't explain to my coaches what was wrong. Like, but I just was off. My body didn't feel right. And I knew I couldn't hurl myself down the mountain and going 80 miles an hour with a lot of big air mm -hmm. if I didn't feel right because I could kill myself. Yeah. So I pulled out of the race. I felt like a basket case. I felt like a mental case. People really got on my case. I went home and Dr. Stedman pulled that screw out of my knee and I got back on the hill and immediately I felt like I could breathe. That's like, strange. yeah, yeah. I felt normal again. Uh huh. So, and that really was a lesson to me. I'm like, wow, I'm pretty sensitive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To the natural play of my joints. I'm sensitive to the how my body works. Um, and at the same time, I could deal with different types of equipment. So, 
Um, I don't know. I, I don't know how you uh, kind of reconcile all of that, but all of that was my experience. Yeah. They, they, they say that there are, they say, that I, I've read most about this in, a, in a, a reasonably famous book, which is not about motorcycling, but it's called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's quite a famous book amongst a certain generation, but the, they basically say that you split the population into two types of people. So you have your romantics and you have your mechanics, essentially. The romantics in terms of motorbike terms, essentially, are people that just love to ride and they're quite sensitive to all of that kind of stuff. And that would be me, essentially. Um, whereas your mechanics, they love to fiddle with stuff and they don't love to know how it works and how it all goes together and always looking for some way to make things better than it actually is. Um, and I think one doesn't necessarily overlap with the other. There might be a little bit of overlap, but not too much. So you're right like if you're you know if you're a romantic essentially you might only be able to understand that there is something wrong but you wouldn't necessarily know how to fix it straight away yeah whereas yeah, the mechanics that's, that's cool. you know might yeah. put all of their all of their kind of eggs in the basket of you know there's an yeah. advantage to be had from having the optimal setup sure. you know yeah. It's yeah. um it's a, it's a, it's a, certainly an interesting thing. I'm going through exactly the same thing with one of my little motorbikes at the moment. I just took it to the mechanics. I said there is something yeah. wrong with this. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's the tires. I can feel it. I went back to the mechanics today and she said there's nothing wrong with this. And I'm yeah. like I know there is something there is a thing here, but she obviously doesn't feel it yeah. in the same yeah. way that I would that, feel that, it. And I can't a, tell her she's wrong. That's she's a mechanic. Awesome right? Analogy. Isn't this strange? Really, the only thing I wanted to talk to you about more that I haven't hit on my little speech bubbles is charity work. I want to know uh -huh. a bit about that. I want to know, yeah. I'd love to know a little bit more about the projects that you've done, various places, uh -huh. and if any are still doing. Um, yeah, if you want to talk about that, and then we could wrap it up like that. Um, charity work. Well, you know, I've, I've had different... Uh, interests throughout the years like when i was a an athlete there was um kind of a when i was young i, I was 20 and um trying to be the example for the 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 kids in washington state about not using drugs and mm -hmm. so i i got involved with that type of campaign and um uh i've been involved with work. My mom was the executive director of an organization called Ski for All, which uh, was um, sports for people with disabilities. Okay. And so I got involved with that. Uh, that was of interest and kind of a family interest of ours. Um, most recently, I haven't been so much involved with charity as much as involved with propelling certain interests. Mm -hmm. uh, and so right now uh, in the ski realm, it's um, uh, working and clinicking with women of color okay. in our ski world because women of color in, in the ski world uh, have not had the resources um, and the same advantage and opportunity as uh, men or just a, a woman who looks like myself. Mm -hmm. And 
that's been for me very, very purposeful and very rewarding. Um, you know, there. If you're familiar with the model Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. You, mm -hmm. the, the base level of Maslow's. I don't know what is that. It's it's going to be safety. Like you, you need to have shelter and mm -hmm. clothing, and you know, and and you then and then there's the second tier of Maslow's. Well, the third tier of Maslow's is you work up that hierarchy of needs as it relates to learning. That third tier is belonging. And if you don't belong, you're not going to learn. You're not going to achieve and realize the, the potential of what there is to learn. And what I've learned with these women of color in our ski industry is they haven't felt embraced and haven't felt belonging. Really? And as a result, they're, they're, um, they're kind of relegated to teaching the kids, teaching the beginners, not being pushed or expected to pass their their PSIA certifications. Mm. And so I've been clinicking with these women and trying to raise the bar, raise the bar of expectation and embrace in terms of belonging and <coughs> go through this mm. process. And oh my gosh, it's it's been so rewarding for me and and really, really awesome. Um so that's something I've really taken on the last few years. And uh, I'm, I'm doing it because nobody else really is. So I don't know. You just find these gaps of where's there a need and you go yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. What, um, what kind of, if you don't mind me asking, like what, because presumably there's no, there's, there's no rules, right? There's nothing in place that stops those women necessarily advancing. So what are the things that are in the way that would stop because you've got the quality of opportunity, right? Like there's no real reason why you couldn't have a PSA three woman of color as the boss, right? There's, there's no rule that says that. So what is, what is it that gets in the way? Well, let's say you're a level one black female instructor. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you're on your ski school and let's say you go to a clinic and the clinic might be um, a young a young guy who's a ripping skier, mm -hmm. and other people in the clinic, you know, might be loud. They they may have a lot of confidence. There they might be the go-to person in the ski school, and very quickly there's a dynamic in the clinic. And there's some people in the clinic that talk a lot and are visible, and there's other people in the clinic who quickly become invisible. Mm -hmm. And maybe they go to the back or maybe they're not recognized or encouraged or maybe that young clinician cannot relate at all as an instructor to that black female who's in the back who doesn't have anything to say, might be insecure and is not as good as everybody else. So that that young clinician who's not very skillful it gets back to the beginning of our clinic of our video or of our um, podcast here mm -hmm. if you're not a skillful clinician in drawing everybody in at reaching everybody where they're at and, and having them learn and have a transformative experience to improve then that person is left behind and if that person who's left behind Who's, if their whole life as a skier 
is continually being left behind, they're not, they're never going to end up as a level three certified ski instructor. They're never going to get there with you ever. Okay. Ever. It, and, and that's what people don't understand. And, you know, just take it back to our analogy in ski instruction, how it kicks my butt every day I go out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm somebody who's highly motivated to reach the person who's in front of me. And not only to reach them, but to teach them and to challenge them and to expect more of them and to take them someplace they didn't know they could go. And I'm highly motivated to do that. If you're the clinician or if you're the ski school director or if you're the teacher, and if you don't have that same mentality, then the people who are a challenge, the people who are not as good, the people who don't understand, they fall away to the wayside. Yeah. And they don't progress as fast as the kid who looks more eager, who as the kid who picks it up quickly, as the kid who might have good equipment. And, you know, we tend to gravitate to the people who are good. We tend to gravitate to the people who we can relate with. Mm-hmm. I can relate to you. I have a connection to you. I understand your experience. Then that is a little bit of an advantage in, in a connection. Um, so there's a lot There's a lot that goes into why this group of women, I mean, and that's just one example. Hmm. I mean, if we, we could do a whole nother podcast on a lot more examples, but that would be one example of how that could play out. Yeah. Okay. That, I mean, part of me wants to say though, isn't that always the case? I, I, if I'm remembering of all the clinics and all of the exams and stuff that I ever went to, there was always you know, it wasn't necessarily a person of color, right? Like it was always a quiet guy or a nerdy guy oh, or, a, or totally. a, you know, there's always a weak one. It's group dynamics. Yeah. It's always group dynamics. Yeah, 100%. And you don't want to be, I've been both. I've been top of the group. I've yeah. been up there in the top 10%. You know, you know how that feels, right? You're just bombing around and it's just life's good, yeah. right? You're one of the hot shots. I've That's also right. been the crappest in the group and that feels awful. That feels yeah. really, really bad. And yeah. you do, you come away completely motivated. On those weeks, I've kind of quit halfway through the week. I'm just like, I'm not at the level, I can't do this. And that, and you, the group you raise, the group goes along without you and you're just like left behind. It's horrible. You raise a great point. Mm. You raise a great point. Um, now, the difference between what you just described is that you may be in that clinic where you're not good and you're left behind. Mm-hmm. Then the difference is another clinic or another day or another year, you've experienced being the best. Mm-hmm. You've experienced being the leader. You're, you, you've got that. This, this group of women in the ski world, they, they, they're, they're ne- they've never been the clinician. They've never been the best. They've never, they've never, they've never had all, they've never had that. Yeah. Um, and so the reason uh, I deliver those clinics is um, so that I can very much address their very unique perspective. Yeah. It's a, it's a very unique perspective. And 
to and you said earlier well it's always that way right there's always which is true yet here you and i are having a podcast about evolving about challenging ourselves about being better yeah so my my purpose as an educator is i've never accept the status quo ever with technique or anything. Well, it's always been that way. So why change that? Mm-hmm. That's I'm a champion. That's not my mentality. My mentality is if I see an area to improve upon, then that's where I go. Some of the, I, yeah. Some of the national organizations have gone down the route of having, um, say female only clinics, for example, would that, that is something that would, go some way to addressing i mean essentially it's a cultural thing within the organization isn't it you know it, it's it, what it you're does. saying it it really depends on uh, it depends on the purpose mm-hmm. i mean this gets into a really broad thing it really depends on the purpose there because there's men only groups mm-hmm. right now i could think of men only groups and sometimes or more historically let, let's take Augusta Golf Club, right? Mm-hmm. The premier golf Like, that was men only for a long time. So that excluded women. Like, you're female. You may not be a part of this club. Um, now, that's a different motivation, I think, than let's say a clinic for women who are wanting to be front and center, not not feel drowned out by maybe a younger male who's better or louder or feels the need to be front and center, that the, the female wants a space where they feel supported, pushed, propelled, heard. That's a different motivation, I think, than an exclusionary no. It's a it's to a it's a builder up kind of kind of experience. So then somebody might say, well, we want to have a male only ski clinic like you have a female only ski clinic. But it, it doesn't, it's not the same thing because the ski world, for the most part, is male. Mm-hmm. And that for over time, more of those ski clinics have benefited um, and been of a tone and flavor and culture that is more male than benefiting the female. So it, it's, it's, it's kind of... A, a bridging of a gap. It's providing an opportunity and uh, a lifting up or um, an encouragement. Now, I think that there's times, depending on the motivation and situation, where you know that I where a, a women's only is is not a benefit. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I, I think. You need to be careful. You need to be careful when those tools or strategies, I think, are used and how and why. Food for thought, for sure. Um, 
yeah, and a very, very complex topic that we could go on for another hour about. So Sure. <laughs> let's save that one for another one. Um, Deb, if anyone wants to go skiing with you, where can they find you? Everyone gets to plug themselves. Where, where should they find you? Where can they find you on YouTube as well? Well, they find me on YouTube at Deb Armstrong Ski Strong. Just Deb Armstrong Ski Strong as it sounds, and they'll find my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Skiing with me, I've got my Ski Strong experience at the Taos Ski Valley in New Mexico, and I may be adding one in Steamboat. Um, but I, I'm doing very little skiing with folks these days, um, other than my Ski Strong programs. I do. There's only one of me, and there's a lot of people out there. Absolutely, <laughs> and you've got to have time to um, roam around with your GoPro as well. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. All right, well, I'll link that in uh, in the podcast description. I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I, I really, Absolutely. really appreciate it. Absolutely, I enjoyed it. All right, cool. Thank you.